Good morning. My name is Joy. Normally you see me up here doing music. And um, today I'm going to be sharing with you some thoughts on parenting. And I want to just begin um, by telling you about myself. I'm uh, married to my husband, wonderful husband Benjamin here. And we have two children. Our oldest is three years old. He was the one screaming earlier in the middle of worship. And my, our baby is eight months old. They're both boys. And I just want to begin by saying that I'm not here to talk to you because I have this whole parenting thing figured out. And I know so much more than all the rest of you parents in this room who are both younger or older or much more experienced and wiser than I am. But I'm a mommy and I stay home with my kids. And in that process, I get pretty desperate for solutions to challenges that my children present to me. And I do a lot of reading and a lot of asking the Holy Spirit for help. And so I'm here to present you today with some of the ideas that the Holy Spirit and some of the authors of books that I've read have given me to help work out some of, this, some of the challenges that I run into in my home on a day-to-day basis. And I also want to make that relatable for those of you who aren't parents or who are before your parenting stage of your life or after your parenting stage of your life. We all know kids, and we all get opportunities to be at parties where there's kids who are around. And amazingly enough, those children might need your attention, even if you're not a parent. And uh, in addition to that, there's things that we can learn, no matter where we are in life, from some of the concepts that I'm going to talk about. So hopefully I'll try to make it relatable to all of you. If you feel like you're stuck and you're like, I just feel like I can't relate this to my life, then try when I'm talking about children, try inserting your coworker or your spouse or significant other or a schoolmate or someone in your life who you do relate to on a really daily basis who maybe might make your life a little challenging, as our children can. <clears throat> my parents were truly amazing. Um, my mom was the parent we spent the most time with because she did stay home with us and also homeschool us. So we were with her for all of our waking hours. And uh, my dad was an amazing dad. He would come home and pull his, pull his weight besides providing for us while he was gone at work during the day. I'm also the oldest of five children. And there was a little batch of three and then a big gap and then a little batch of two. And I'm the oldest of all of the batches. So I had the privilege of watching my mom raise my two youngest sisters, who I'm 10 years and 12 years older than them, and sort of be a mini-mom in the house, and I really learned a lot watching her. I have a lot of great childhood memories. I remember a lot of playing. I remember a lot of spanking. I remember a lot of swimming in our pool. I remember my mom sitting next to me doing my schoolwork with me when I was stuck. I remember crawling into my mom's lap or bed, even as a teenager, and sharing my heart, being heard, and being accepted. I remember not being allowed to do things I really wanted to do, and not understanding the reasons why, or sometimes not being given reasons why. And <clears throat> The childhood that my parents had was not as loving or peaceful as the one they gave to us. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, they did things differently with their own kids than what was done to them. The love and the discipline my parents gave me was a gift. And as a parent, I've tried to build on that foundation. And there's things that I'm choosing to do differently and things that I feel like I'm, if I may say, doing better because I'm building on the legacy that they laid and taking it hopefully a step further by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I would hope that that's the same legacy we want to give our children, that they can not only grow up to be great kids and great adults, but even even better parents than we were to them. 
That's the hope we have for them. Um, In the several of the books that I've been reading lately, I feel like the kind of the heart that I keep coming to is connection. And what do I mean when I say connection? I mean an emotional feeling of being attached, being close and intimate with a person. We can spend a lot of time with somebody and not feel close or attached or connected to them. This happens all the time in marriage relationships. Um, Benjamin and I have been to marriage counseling on and off the last few years, and there was a couple years we spent going weekly when we were really struggling. And inevitably, when we call them up and say, we need help again, and we get together, the first question they ask us is, Benjamin, how do you feel connected to Joy? Joy, are you feeling connected to Benjamin? We were created for this type of connection, this type of connection with God, where we can actually feel connected with him, and this type of connection with each other. After God created a beautiful, immaculate, sin-free world, he announced one great problem. It was not good for Adam to be alone. Adam needed more than a world free of suffering and death. He needed more than relationship with God. He needed connection with another of his kind. As adults, we're constantly seeking connection. I I truly believe this is why many of these social media are so popular. Facebook, Twitter, text messaging, these um, various functions have found success because we need connection and we're longing for connection. And even in our daily lives, where we might be surrounded by people, we're not experiencing it. A mom could be at home with her small kids surrounded by her little ones and their needs. Or a teenager could be at school surrounded by their friends. A child who's throwing a tantrum. A family who's sitting at a restaurant together all on their phones. Or a retired person whose children and grandchildren live far away. All of us have people in our lives, and yet we might be missing connection. If you go anywhere in public these days, what do you see people doing all the time? They're hopping on Facebook to find somebody to talk to. They're texting another friend. And the amazing thing is sometimes they're not alone. Sometimes they're with other people. And why is this happening? I'm not criticizing our use of our phones. I'm just asking why. Why are we still so lonely? Where are we seeking to find connection? In shallow form or in deep form, but we're desperate for someone to hear us, someone to share in our longings, someone to soothe our aloneness. Over the course of my day, I I do try to spend time actually connecting with my kids. And there's other times when I'm doing very legitimate things like folding laundry or cleaning up the kitchen that are a result of caring for them in other ways. And um, Jax doesn't always handle that very well. And so one day when I was busy cleaning the kitchen and he had already asked to play with me several times, he finally said, Mommy, I need some attention from the iPad. (laughs) And I can be as much as fault as anyone of being distracted when I should be paying more attention to the people who are around me. I can still be the mom whose child is at my knee saying, Mommy, 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 Toby is crying. While I'm in a zone responding to a text message and not hearing either of them, the one at my knee or the one crying. So when I talk about parenting today, I want to talk about connection. And I want to talk about feelings, our feelings and our children's feelings, how often the negative behaviors that our children are exhibiting or that adults around us are exhibiting is really a desperate cry for connection, for closeness, for love and attention. He is just doing that for attention. If you have never heard someone say that about a child, I'm surprised you're still alive. We hear this said all the time. Why is it so bad? Why is it so bad that the child should need attention? 
Perhaps his valid need for attention is not being met on a daily basis and his need for connection. So he cries out for it, but he uses aggression or tears or a refusal to cooperate. It's easy to connect with an infant, even if you've never had the privilege of having one of your own. You've had one around you, and they're fun to connect with. You can pretty much just walk up and smile and giggle and tap them on the nose, and you get a smile and a giggle back. It's easy to connect with them. And as they grow up, some of us struggle to still know how to connect with them. And the children need things besides just their basic needs being met. And all of a sudden, we have to come up with creative solutions. I'm not going to read everything that I put in this particular section, but I read this very lengthy article called, Is Facebook Making Us Lonely? It was written by a man named John Cassiopo. He's the director of the Center for Cognitive and Social Neuroscience at the University of Chicago. He's the world's leading expert on loneliness. He recently published a book in 2008 titled Loneliness. He found that they drew blood from older adults and analyzed their white blood cells. We found that loneliness somehow penetrated the deepest recesses of their cells and altered the way their genes were being expressed. So loneliness is not only affecting your brain, but the entire process of your DNA. When you are lonely, your whole body is lonely. The best tool yet for measuring the condition of loneliness is the UCLA Loneliness Scale, a series of 20 questions that all begin with this formulation, how often do you feel As in, how often do you feel you are in tune with the people around you? How often do you feel you lack companionship? Measuring the condition of these terms, various studies have shown loneliness is rising drastically over a very short period of time in recent history. Another survey found that 35% of older adults, older than 45, and that's not really older, but that's what it's saying here, These people were were chronically lonely, as opposed to 20% of that same group of people only a decade earlier. So we went from 20% of that age group experiencing loneliness to 35% of them. And you wonder, like, you know, they had kids, their kids grew up, and they probably don't live near them anymore. So now they have greater loneliness because they're distanced from the people around them. According to another major um, study, roughly 20% of Americans, about 60 million people, are unhappy with their lives because of loneliness. And I just want to comment one more thing on this whole, because it's just striking me lately in this thing of connection and, and technology, is also what happened to the role of solitude in our lives. And this isn't really, you know, kind of totally on topic, but solitude used to be have a purpose. It was good for self-reflection, for self-reinvention, and we don't leave space for appropriate solitude anymore. There's always our phone to fix that. All right, coming back a little bit closer to the topic. So I started doing some reading in the book of Proverbs because that's the book we've been studying, what the wisdom that's found in Proverbs. What does Proverbs have to say about parenting? <clears throat> and I found some great parenting advice in there. As I searched the word child and layered it to the um, book of Proverbs, the primary verses that I found said things like discipline your children or use on your children a rod. This was a little, made me not sure how I wanted to talk about that. But I've learned from my wonderful parents that we need to dig a little bit deeper into scripture and not interpret it just how it seems on the page. So I did a little more digging. Here's four verses that I'll read to you that I found, and then we'll dig into them. 
Proverbs 13:24. Whoever spares the rod hates their child, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. Proverbs 22:15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far away. Proverbs 19:18. Discipline your children, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to their death. Proverbs 29:17. Discipline your children and they will give you peace. They will bring you the delights you desire. So I looked at this word discipline. In Hebrew, it's yasar. And kind of the more um, words that would describe what it's talking about is correct, instruct, teach, punish, train, or warn. So it's more than giving information. It's more than a spanking or standing in the corner. It's a call for guidance that would steer and shepherd a child's heart. If we think of the word disciple as we would mentor or disciple a young Christian in the faith, so we would guide and discipline or disciple a child. The word rod in Hebrew is shebet. And a further explanation of that, it would be described as rod, staff, club, scepter, or tribe. It's the word that's used in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I did some more further reading, and I found a man named Philip Keller, who was raised as a shepherd in the Middle East. And he talks quite in depth about the shepherd's rod and the shepherd's staff, which are two different instruments. The staff was long with a curve on the end, And the rod had a bony, hard, round end, and then a long stick. He says this. These are the common and universal equipment of a primitive shepherd. Each shepherd boy, from the time he first starts to tend his father's flock, takes special pride in the selection of a rod and staff exactly suited to his own size and strength. He goes into the bush and selects a young sapling, which is dug from the ground, It is carved and whittled down with great care and patience. It is shaped to exactly fit the owner's hand. After he completes it, the shepherd boy spends hours practicing with this club, learning how to throw it with amazing speed and accuracy. It becomes his main weapon of defense for both himself and his sheep. The rod, in fact, was an extension of the owner's right arm. It stood as a symbol of his strength, his power, and his authority in any serious situation. And he goes on to describe several uses for the rod. There is one use here that I found very interesting. There's another verse uh, that talks about it in Ezekiel. It says, I will cause you to pass under the rod. And he said what this is meaning is that because the sheep had lots of fur, it was difficult to tell how their skin was doing underneath. And if if their internal body was not doing well, their skin would begin to develop sores or things to reflect their internal condition. And so under the rod, the shepherd would use it to separate and move apart their long fleece to look at their skin to see how the sheep was doing, to examine it if all was well. It was a searching process entailing every intimate detail. And that was comforting to the sheep, for only in this way could its hidden problems be laid bare before the shepherd. In Zechariah, we read this. I shepherded the flock marked for slaughter, particularly the oppressed of the flock. Then I took two staffs and called one favor and the other union, and I shepherded the flock. 
Favor in this context is talking about blessing, and union is talking about a family bond. So in the Old Testament, this shebet, rod, staff, two different things, but a similar word used, at least in Scripture. It represented authority, healing, salvation, and was an icon for a person's family, tribe, and position. So I want to read you these verses again. I took a little bit of liberty of using some of the different words that I discovered in this process to read these verses in Proverbs again that talk about parenting. Proverbs 13:24. Whoever withholds authority, healing, salvation, blessing, or family bonding from their child hates their children. But the one who loves their children is careful to instruct, train, correct, punish, and guide them. Proverbs 22:15. Lack of wisdom is in the heart of a child, but the strength, protection, and caring touch of correction and instruction will drive it far away. Proverbs 19:18. Teach, warn, punish, and guide your children, for in that there is hope. Without your instruction and guidance, their sinful nature would lead them to their death, of which you would be a willing party. Proverbs 29:17. Instruct, correct, train, and guide your children, and they will give you peace. This will lead to blessing for your children and blessing for yourself. As I went back through these verses, I wanted to cry, which I'm struggling with right now. And I just thought, how beautiful is the word of the Lord when we can see what he really has to say to us about our children and the children around us. How beautiful is that instruction compared to how we would initially read those verses? You know, okay, I guess I'm a faulty parent for not spanking my kid with a rod. You know, it's just, it's just not even what is being said there. And now that we can understand, doesn't our, the instruction to use the rod and the instruction to discipline our children have such a special understanding? It is blessing. It is nurturing. It is guiding, demonstrating authority and cultivating a child's development, bonding with our children, leading them to salvation, rescuing our children from distress or danger, giving information to their thirsty minds and nurturing to their tender hearts. One more word from Proverbs. And this is where I want to talk about the example that we set. Proverbs 27. The righteous lead blameless lives. Blessed are their children after them. This is one of those cause and effect proverbs of which there's a lot of. And the cause is that we would lead blameless lives. Not just parents, because it doesn't say that the parent would lead blameless lives. But all of us, those whom children observe. Blessed are children, are, will children be after us. So as we follow after Christ, our children and other people's children can reap the fruit of that. They will also observe and follow. Most of the time, my older son, Jax, speaks to our baby, Toby, how I speak to him. Kids are intuitive and smart. And if you found anything out about them, you'll know that they mimic better than they listen. 
And I think sometimes it's too easy for me to look across the room and I see Jack speaking sharply to Toby, taking away a toy. Jack says, stop, stop, stop. And how do I, how do I respond? Jack, cut it out. It's not his fault. He's a baby. <laughs> or could I walk over to him, crouch down to his level and say in a gentle, calm voice, Jack, your brother is so little. He doesn't realize he's upsetting you right now. Let me help you find some toys that Toby could play with. Or let me pick Toby up and take him somewhere else for a little while so you can play without being bothered. Or maybe I could play with both of you right now to help you. As I was preparing this message, I got um, a Facebook message from one of my sweet college friends, Heather, who is now the mother of six children. When I knew her in college, I babysat for her oldest child and a little bit for her second child before I moved away. And she now has six kids. I have not, not met the met the rest of the other kids and the one I babysat as an infant is now probably taller than me (laughs) and she responded to a message that I had sent her saying this it is such a joy to be a parent and nothing else compares to the stretching and refining that it requires of us keep pursuing Jesus first he will give you the grace you need for each day such a graceful response a lot of my parenting answers have come from the Holy Spirit I seek a lot of input and advice from those around me that I trust, from books that I've read. And a lot of times it still comes up short. I still don't have the answer that I need. And when I pray, I often just get an idea right there. And then other times the Holy Spirit directs me to a new other person or a new book to read that has provided me with solutions that I need. So let's look at God. Let's look at his example. He's a parent. He parents all of us. He is our father, one of the ways that scripture refers to him continually as father. What can we learn from him? How does he parent us? 2 Corinthians 1.3, all praise to the God and father of our master, Jesus, the Messiah, father of all mercy, God of all healing counsel. He comes alongside us when we go through hard times. And before you know it, he brings alongside someone else who is going through hard times So we can be there for that person, just as God was there for us. Nahum 1.7, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust him. 1 Thessalonians, this is now Paul talking to one of the churches that he has helped uh, to begin. And he's writing to them from far away. He says this, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom of glory and glory. So when my kids are annoying me, seemingly on purpose, throwing a fit over the temperature of their food, hitting a sibling, hitting me, refusing to share with friends, refusing to leave the house, refusing to go home, threatening me with ugly faces and words, or crying over a piece of food fallen on the floor. How can I respond? I fail a lot of times, but how do I want to get to where I can respond consistently? And how do I interact with their big sins and their small catastrophes? Before I had kids, when I would see a child having a total meltdown over something that seemed ridiculously small, such as, for example, having a blue ball come out of the machine instead of the red ball. I mean, your mom bought you a ball. Be happy. I had this little saying, hmm, life is so hard. 
It was sarcastic on my part because the sadness of that child seemed ridiculous in light of the many disappointments that life could have presented them. And now as a parent, I've repented of that because what is hard for our children is hard for our children. Life is indeed so hard. And it's hard as parents to guide our children. And it's hard for kids to be kids, to experience the hard knocks and little griefs that come their way. The wrong color ball is indeed a tragedy. Just as when we buy paint for a wall in our house and it doesn't look like we like it after we've spent three hours painting it on. We have this grown-up idea that only grown-up disappointments matter. Do our kids matter? Of course. Then their feelings, their experience of life, it matters. And let's not downplay that any longer. Let's see what we can do to become the parent that God is for us, encouraging, comforting, a refuge in times of trouble, caring for those who trust him, coming alongside us, urging us to live lives of the kingdom and glory. All right, I'm on page 9 of 21, so I have to figure out what to skip. (laughs) I'm going to talk to you a little bit about one of the books, um, what I would call a tool in my parenting tool in my parenting tool belt. It's a book called Playful Parenting by Lawrence Cohen. I highly recommend it. Mr. Cohen is a psychologist who specializes in playing with children. His book, Playful Parenting, is about using play to fix problems that our kids are having. I've experienced a lot of resistance on the way of reading this book, primarily because play is not my forte as a parent. It's easier for me to care for my children's needs, to love them, console them, read stories to them, than to play with them. But I've learned recently in this church that when we experience internal resistance, that's an alert. And I should probably stop being angry at the author or message that's annoying me and observe that I am resisting and explore the reasons why I am resisting. I may uncover something there the Lord's trying to do inside of me. So if you experience resistance already in what I've said today or as we're going forward, I might be wrong or the Lord might be alerting you to something inside of you. So explore your resistance instead of just stopping listening to me. Our resistance can be a red light for something that God is doing. That's just another bonus. All right. So the purpose of children's play, it's more than entertainment. For adults, play means leisure. But for children, play is more like their job. There's three points that this author makes about play. Play is children's main way of communicating, of experimenting, and of learning. Play is also a way for them to be close with those who are playing with them. And even more important, a way to reconnect after closeness has been severed. And for children, the third primary purpose of play is to recover from emotional distress. He tells a story about his daughter, who is elementary age, who he's raised in this manner. So she's familiar with some of the ways that play can be used in, in connection. And he was frustrated with her at that moment and not having headway in their interaction. And she interjected, Let's pretend you're the dad and I'm the daughter and you're mad at me. Well, that won't be hard to pretend, the author said he thought. But soon they would be laughing instead of arguing as they pretended and he made light and exaggerated his anger of being of pretending to be mad at her. He thought he says I thought it was very clever of her to transform through play our disconnection into connection. Our children might be annoying, obnoxious, or downright infuriating as they desperately try to signal us they need more connection. These situations call for creating more playtime, not doling out punishment, or leaving the lonely child all alone. When children feel isolated, the symptoms that we sometimes see is they can look withdrawn or depressed or violent or rebellious. 
When we see a child who is fearful or out of control or violent, we don't usually stop to put the pieces together. We don't ask ourselves, has she had enough chance to play it through? Has there something experienced that she's had that's frightened her and she hasn't had the opportunity to play that out with her dolls or talk it through with someone who would listen to her? Usually we just see the problem behavior and it angers or worries us so much we don't think about using play to help solve it. These are signs of isolation and powerlessness. But play is a way we can engage with children and pull them out of emotional shutdown or misbehavior. And again, if we don't play, we miss out on more than fun. Play is where children show us their inner feelings and their experiences they can't or won't talk about. When we get disconnected from our children, and we do again and again, play is our best bridge to bring back deeper connection with them. Adults, whether you are parents or not, you have the power to help children. Not to just get out of their way or to keep them safe from harm or to tell them to go play in, a, in another room with other kids while you talk to the adults, but to actively help them develop, heal from hurt, and maintain close human connection. Since children already use play to connect, heal, and develop confidence, it is a logical next step for adults to play with them. Maybe we said we would never be harsh with our children the way that others were harsh with us. Then just when they need us most, when they act up or they misbehave or they call us a name, we get angry and we punish them or we feel hurt and we block them out. We momentarily forget how fragile our little ones are just as they forget about cooperation or following the rules. This is true of all human relationship. We too easily forget how much affirmation our spouse needs just as he forgets to put away his dirty laundry. We easily forget how our coworker needs acceptance when they've had a bad attitude day and forget to do their part of a report on time. Being overlooked causes loneliness, and being completely overlooked can cause the most severe forms of mental illness. So translate what we see and we hear with our kids into the language of closeness versus isolation and confidence versus powerlessness. How can we help kids gain closeness and connection, and gain confidence. I'm going to share with you this great illustration from this particular book, this playful parenting book. He calls it the game of the love gun. And he tells it this way. One of my daughter's friends came over to play one day. He was six. He quickly found the only gun in our house, a squirt gun, and aimed it at my face. Fortunately, I knew the squirt gun was empty, so I had a little time to think what my reaction would be. I knew the importance of using play to make a connection with this violent behavior. So no matter how aggressive or solitary his play appeared to be, um, I knew that because boys are especially prone to feeling isolated. So I said, hey, you found the love gun. He hesitated, thrown off by my response. He looked at the gun, puzzled that his weapon of destruction might have anything to do with love. I said, oh, yeah, when I get shot with that gun, I just have to love the person who shot me. I opened up my arms wide and took a step toward him with a big, goofy, love-struck grin on my face. He fired the gun once, squealed in delight, threw the gun to the floor, and ran out of the room laughing. I chased him and hugged him when I caught him, hamming it up about how much I loved him. He was laughing and laughing. My daughter picked up the gun and shot me, and I left him to chase her, putting my hand to my heart and making up bad poetry about my lifelong devotion to her. For at least half an hour, the two of them took turns shooting me, running away, saying, Yuck, go away, stop loving me, 
or giggling up a storm. Since then, I've played this game a lot with kids who kick, punch, bite, or spit. You got me with the love kick. Now I have to hug you. Sometimes they'll say, no, this is a hate gun. I respond, oh, it must be broken. It's making me love you. (laughs) This game has infinite variations. If they barricade themselves in a room, I slip love notes under the door and beg and plead to be allowed in. If they laugh and start sending messages back, I know I'm on the right track. If they come at me with both arms swinging, I say, oh, you want to dance? I love to dance. And I take both their hands and start dancing and singing. It seems like a cliche to say that all of these behaviors adults find so annoying or threatening are just attempts to make a human connection. But this game shows us how true it is. And he makes a note, this is for aggressive play. This is not when a child might be telling you about a situation that made him angry or hurt or upset and would might need to talk through the situation and then play later. He says, whether playing or listening or holding, the key is to push for a close and meaningful connection. Okay, so I have a little bit of time to tell you about the second tool in your parenting tool belt that I wanted to bring up. Well, really, I think I've already given you two. The first one just being connection in general. And you can let the Holy Spirit lead you in how that could look with your own kids or the kids around you. And the second being play um, and the variations of that. If you need more help on what that could look like, the information I've given you is basically from the first chapter of the book. So the whole rest of the book is about, okay, how do we make this work? And how do we use play in more ways um, to engage and connect with our kids? There's a lot of great stuff in there. So this um, next section is from another book called How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. Wouldn't that be great? Um, I read the first chapter of this book and I called my mom. I said, Mom, you have to read this book or at least the first chapter. It's a how-to manual for some of the other things that we've learned in this church from the Intimate Life series about comfort and um, when someone is experiencing a strong emotion, how to give them some emotional validation for the pain that they're in. And I felt like this chapter on helping, listening so kids will talk and talking so however he says it, um, was really giving a how-to manual for connecting with people when they're experiencing a strong emotion. And this author says, there's a direct connection between how kids feel and how they're behaving. When kids feel right, they'll behave right. I would venture to say this is true of adults as well. There's a direct connection between how people are feeling and how they're behaving. When people feel right, they behave right. As adults, we do have some additional learned skills of self-control that enable us to temporarily behave right even when we don't feel right. But this is not sustainable for anyone. So these are still skills that are valid. How do we help people, children, feel right? One of the ways we can when they have strong emotion is by accepting their feelings. The problem is we don't usually accept other people's feelings, especially children. Have you ever said any of these things to a child or adult? You don't really feel that way. You're just saying that because you're tired. There's no reason to be so upset. You'll be fine. A steady denial of feelings can confuse and enrage kids and people. It also teaches them not to know what their feelings are, not to trust them. Mommy, I'm hungry. You couldn't be hungry. You just ate. But I'm hungry. You're not hungry. You're just having a hard time falling asleep. Close your eyes. Stop talking. No, I'm hungry. Mommy, it's hot in here. It's cold. Keep your sweater on. No, I'm hot. That show was boring. 
No, it wasn't. It was very interesting. It was dumb. It was educational. It was stupid. Don't talk that way. And all of a sudden, you're locked in a battle of wills. Your child suddenly has bad behavior talking that way or not listening. When the problem is, he expressed his feelings calmly and you denied them. When we deny feelings, we're escalating the person's feelings. And eventually, we also escalate their behavior. Here's how we could respond to those particular scenarios differently. So you're feeling hungry, even though you just ate before bed. I'm cold, but for you, it's hot in here. I can see you didn't care much for that show. After all, we are two separate people capable of having two sets of feelings. Neither of us are right or wrong. We just felt what we felt. The thing is, most of us grew up having our feelings denied. And so we continue to do it to each other every day. And just a little side note on feelings. There are some, um, sometimes within the Christian community, feelings are denied. Uh, saying things like, you know, don't trust your feelings, just need to believe or have faith. And I'm not criticizing any of that, but I want to point out that Jesus had feelings. And if he was God and he had feelings, and we can read in the Bible that he had sorrow, anger, disappointment, fatigue, love, passion, delight, then our feelings have to be God-given and not evil and bad and to be suppressed. We can't conclude that our feelings are part of our fallen nature and they need to just go away because they're bad. So we can try to help our kids and our spouses and the people around us process our feelings by listening and expressing understanding. And I want to make one more point here, which is that acknowledging a person's emotion is not the same as approving of their emotion. And sometimes a person is expressing very strong emotion to us and we think we have to deny it because we don't agree with them. But there are ways for us to provide validation to the experience of emotion they're having that will bring calm and healing to them without having to agree with their point of view. So we sometimes hesitate or refuse to acknowledge our children's or friends' emotions because we disagree with their perspective, or maybe just because their emotions are too strong for us. So to give you an idea of what I'm talking about here, I'm going to read this story to you. Imagine that you're at work. Your employer asks you to do an extra job for him. He wants it ready by the end of the day. You mean to take care of it immediately, to take care of it immediately, but because of a series of emergencies that come up, you come up, you forget. Things are so hectic, you barely have time for your own lunch. As you and a few coworkers are getting ready to go home, your boss comes over to you and asks for the finished piece of work. Quickly, you try to explain how unusually busy you were today. He interrupts you in a loud, angry voice. He shouts, I'm not interested in your excuses. What the heck do you think I'm paying you for, to sit around all day on your butt? As you open your mouth to speak, he says, save it, and walks to the elevator. Your coworkers pretend not to have heard. You finish gathering your things and leave the office. On the way home, you meet a friend. You're still so upset that you find yourself telling her about the events. Here are some ways she might respond. These are not the ways we would like to respond. And I just want you to... Try to put yourself in the shoes of that person who just had that boss speak to them that way and think how these different responses I'm going to read would make you feel if these are your friends telling you this. The first one would be denial of your feelings. There's no reason to be upset. It's foolish to feel that way. You're probably just tired and blowing the whole thing out of proportion. It can't be as bad as you make it out to be. Come on, smile. You look so nice when you smile. Number two, the philosophical response. Look, life is like that. Things don't turn out the way we want. You have to learn to take things in stride. In this world, nothing is perfect. Number three, advice. You know what I think you should do? Tomorrow morning, go straight to your boss's office and say, look, I was wrong. 
Then sit down and finish that piece of work. Don't get trapped by those little emergencies that come up. If you're smart and you want to keep that job of yours, you'll make sure nothing like that happens again. Number four, questioning. What exactly were those emergencies you had that would cause you to forget a special request from your boss? Didn't you realize he'd be angry if you didn't get to it? Has this ever happened before? Why didn't you follow him when he left the room and try to explain again? Number five, defense of the other person. I can understand your boss's reaction. He's probably under terrible pressure. You're lucky he doesn't lose his temper temper more often, especially if you've done this before. (laughs) Number six, pity. Oh, you poor thing. That's terrible. I feel so sorry for you. I could just cry. Number seven, amateur psychoanalysis. (laughs) Has it ever occurred to you the real reason you're so upset by this is because your employer represents a father figure in your life? As a child, you probably worried about displeasing your father, and when your boss scolded you, it brought back your early fears of rejection. Isn't that true? (laughs) Yeah, but now might not be the time for that, right? So here's the empathetic response that this book is encouraging us to have. An attempt to tune into the feelings of the other person. Boy, that sounds like a rough experience to be subjected to an attack like that in front of other people, especially after you were under so much pressure. That must have been hard to take. Let someone really listen. Let someone acknowledge my inner pain and give me a chance to talk about what's troubling me. And I begin to feel less upset, less confused, and even more able to cope with my feelings and my problem. So here's four ways that we can acknowledge emotions. And I'm going to, I did a little hand motion for this, for those of you who are a little more kinetic. Um, and also because as a parent, I forget stuff. And so I'm going to think, oh, I, heard, I always listen to this. Oh, that's great stuff. And then when I'm home with my kids, I just sometimes forget. And so I'm going to give you this little thing that maybe could help you, especially those of you who are parents who have little kids who need to apply this. So the first way to acknowledge emotions is listen with full attention. So I'm going to make you all do this to me. Right hand over your ear, listen. Listen with full attention. All right, the second one is acknowledge with a word. So I'm going to point to my mouth and just speak, and this one finger means one word. And I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. So this is the next one. Acknowledge with one word. Um, The ASL, American Sign Language, sign for name is this. Two fingers here and touch together. That means name. So this is the third one. Give a name to the feelings. This is important for our children, but it can be used within adults too. For example, that must have hurt. That had startled you. That sounds very sad. And with kids, they don't have words for their emotions, but they experience them so much, and it can help to give a name to their emotions. Sometimes an adult, when you do this with an adult, might irritate them if you guess wrong at the wrong emotion. But if you're doing it in a caring manner, they'll experience that, and they may say, well, no, it wasn't that I was angry. It was just that I was afraid. But it still gives you a chance to talk about the emotion they're experiencing. And then the next one, I'm going to use this, like full sparkles, and it's called Grant Them Their Wishes and Fantasy. So listen, acknowledge with a word, give a name, and grant the wishes and fantasy. And I'll explain what I'm talking about. <laughs> so I'll, I'm going to explain it by using a story. This is um, my son, Jax is three. This incident happened not that long ago, shortly after I had read the first couple chapters of this book. We were at Home Depot, <clears throat> and Jax is a very intense, emotional, um, experiencing person, and he's also sensitive to people and sensitive to responses. And so anytime that I respond harshly, it affects him even greater. Um, So we're at Home Depot, and it was the 4th of July weekend, and they had balloons all over with little 
red and blue and white and stripes and things. And he's asking me to give him a balloon. Well, it's Home Depot. They're not selling balloons. They're just there for decoration. And he insists, ask somebody. I, you know, I, well, we can't take them. They don't belong to us. Well, ask somebody if I can have it. Okay, fine. I'll have somebody. So the next random Home Depot guy that walks by has white hair. And so I think, oh, maybe we'll be lucky. So, because he's seen a lot of kids in his life. Hopefully he's gentle. And so I say to him, my son is is asking about these balloons. And I told him that they're not for sale and I can't buy one for him. But he's asking about the balloons, if there was any way he could have one. Oh, for sure. So there's this, you know, those balloon arch things, this huge one. He kind of pulls on it. He goes, yeah, those aren't coming out. And they were just the plain red or blue. So he goes, oh, there's more over here. So he walks us to the other part of the store. And there's this, the Mylar ones, real shiny and a big star with reds and yellow and blue or red blue and white stripes on a string and he pulls it off and he hands it to him and then Jax had been looking at these teeny tiny little measuring tapes that were about this big like to fit in your pocket or your bag and so I tied the I was going to get it for him it was a dollar and so I tied the balloon onto that little thing to use as a weight so the balloon wouldn't be lost well he was thrilled so we go from Home Depot to Sam's Club and of course he insists that he wants to take the balloon with him into Sam's Club and I'm thinking well I guess it should be fine, right? It's on the way. I tied the knot strong. So we're in Sam's, and I'm thinking, you know, where is he going to put this balloon? And so I just, I took it, and I took the little weight, and I looped it a couple times around the handlebar of the shopping cart so that the balloon would stay with us in the shopping cart. And every once in a while, he would kind of hit it, but he pretty much didn't pay attention. He was just happy that it was with us. And we're in the checkout line, and I've, I've got Toby in the carrier, and I'm putting all the food for the checkout person, and all of a sudden I see him pulling on the string, pulling, pulling, and leaning his weight, and I'm looking, oh, this is going to be bad. So I try to walk over to help him, and i too late. He pulls on the string some more, and the balloon pops off. The string breaks from the knot and the weight that I had put on it, and it flies up to the top of the ceiling at Sam's Club. And, of course, I, you already know what's going to happen, right? He's three years old, so he cries. He's just crying, just totally inconsolable. I mean, just kicking, screaming, totally. I mean, he's just devastated over having lost this balloon. And really, it is disappointing. I mean, we got a balloon for free, and now it's gone. You know, kind of nice story turned into a bad one. But my response was not great initially. And first, I started criticizing and questioning him. What happened? Why did you pull the string so hard? You should have just told me you needed help. And then I stopped because, of course, now he's just getting even more bad. He's escalating, right? And I think to myself, okay, wait, what were they telling me in that book? How, listen, one word, <laughs> grant them their wishes and fantasy, <laughs> give it a name. And so I was like, okay, I need to just stop. And I think to myself, how, what can I say? So I said, that's really sad that your balloon is gone. He goes, yeah. And I said, and we can't get it down. That's right. And you really liked that balloon. I did it. And you didn't know it would fly away if you pulled so hard on the string. Yeah, I did it. You just wanted to hold it, and now it's gone, and that's really sad. Yeah, and your heart just hurts. Yeah, Mommy. Now, normally, this would have been a situation where I kind of came at him about what all the things that he did wrong, and he should have thought about it first, and then he escalates, and I carry him out to the car, kicking and screaming until we get in the car, still kicking and screaming. I probably eventually spank him for kicking and screaming because he won't calm down. Totally different approach. So he gets calm, but then as we get at the car, he starts escalating, and he's still really sad. The emotion is just still really strong. And so I just say, you know what? I will take you to Party City. It's next door to Home Depot. I will get you another balloon. Like, you did a great job of calming down. This is a situation that I would like to remedy, and I can remedy. It can't be that expensive to get another balloon. 
So we get in, we go into the party city, and we're looking at all the balloons, and they have patriotic ones, and they have Spider-Man ones and Cars ones, and I'm like, oh, great, now there's like $15 balloons. What am I getting myself into? And he, and he said, I don't want any of these balloons. And so then I said, that was your favorite balloon, and there will never be another balloon in the world like it. He said, yeah. You don't want another one, because only that balloon was the perfect balloon. Yeah. So then I said, hey, so we were at Home Depot, and they had these balloons. Can I describe it to you? It was shaped like a star. It had little red things over here and little stripes over here, blue, you know, patriotic one, but shaped like a star. Do you have that one? The guy goes, oh, look. So he goes in this bucket over in the corner of, I guess, the patriotic balloons. He starts digging, like this one? <laughs> they had it. So they blew it up. It cost a dollar. And we walked out of the store, and he was happy. And the real lesson was a new way for us to interact with each other and for me seeing that he could actually calm down as I validated his emotions and as I talked to him in a way that acknowledged the pain that he was experiencing, as ridiculous as it seemed to me as an adult to be so upset, and even as ridiculous as we think our adult problems are that our friend or spouse might be talking to us about, when we can acknowledge someone's emotions, then we can provide them with healing. So I want to um, come back. Oh, I'm over time. I'm almost done. I want to come back to the scripture. Isaiah 61. This is the passage that Jesus read when he announced that he was entering his ministry. And this is the message that we can say as parents and adults who know kids around us and who know other people around us of how we want to meet their needs and what the Lord is asking us to do for the people around us. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me and is on each of you. Because the Lord has anointed you to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent you to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to release from darkness the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And I'm realizing that I never explained my little hand signals. I'm going to do that super fast. So I think listening with full attention, we can get that. You know, put down what you're doing. Listen and demonstrate with your body that you're listening. Acknowledging with the words, very simple. Oh, hmm, I see. Not really commentary, just acknowledging very simply that you're still listening. Giving a name to the feelings, I think we can understand that, especially with the child, you're feeling really sad right now. I kind of gave you some examples there. And then the last one, Grant, his wishes and fantasy, I didn't really talk about, but I sort of did an illustration of the balloon. I also did this one time when he was throwing a fit about wanting to have the iPad. And I had tried all the other ones and nothing was working yet. And I remembered this one, Grant, their wishes and fantasy. And so I said, you would love it if mommy would let you be on the iPad all day and all night and you never had to go to bed and you never had to stop to pee and you never had to even stop to eat. You could just be on the iPad all the time. He goes, yeah. (laughs) And then he stopped asking me about the iPad. And he went on and played and was happy. So listen with full attention. Acknowledge with the word. Hmm, I see Give them a name to their feelings, and then grant their wishes and fantasy. You don't have to do them all, but you can. those are some tools to try. And the very last point that I want to make, and I'm going to make it even though it's late because it's really important, is coming back to the very beginning where I was talking about loneliness and connection. 
<clears throat> and that's something that we're all seeking is connection. And I just want you to pause for just a moment, and I'm going to just give us a little time to pray and ask the Holy Spirit. And I'd like for you to consider places in your life where you're longing for connection, where there is loneliness. And, and think as you kind of go about your day today about actions that you know you're taking in your life that are connection-seeking actions. And ask yourself, are those connection-seeking actions leading me to connection or not? And maybe there's some changes that the Holy Spirit would ask you to make. Maybe some of those connection-seeking actions are actually inhibiting real connection in your life, or maybe you just need to take some action to do it. And we need to connect with the Lord. Colossians 2.19. These people have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body is supported and held together by its ligaments grows. It grows as God is causing it to grow. So when we're not connected to the Lord... We're not experiencing connection with him in a meaningful manner and taking action on that part. Then we're going to lose connection in other parts of our life as well. We're going to experience loneliness because our very true source of connection and need meeting is empty. <clears throat> and 2 Corinthians 1.3, I already read this one. I'm going to read it one more time. He comes alongside us when we go through hard times. And before you know it, he brings us alongside someone else who is going through hard times so we can be there for that person just as God was there for us. So what connection do we have with the Lord? And could it be that our lack of connection with Jesus is the root of our disconnection from those around us also? Could the loneliness that we're experiencing spark most deeply from missing him? And then can we find that need being met with him and find that need being met with people and translate that into connection and coming alongside those around us, children and adults alike? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I just thank you so much that you are the greatest teacher of all and you are the greatest father of all and that you long to connect with us and to meet our deepest needs and to bring us into community where we can experience our human needs being met. Lord, give us your strength and your patience. Lord, guide us with your gentle rod and staff that are comforting to us so that we can be there for our kids, for the kids who are around us, and we can be there for each other. Lord, draw us back into connection with you. Reveal to us times in our life when we're um, taking activities that are not truly connecting. And give us the strength to find times for connection. And Lord, give us, fill us with your mercy. Lord, every person in here, the children they interact with, you fill them with your mercy and your teaching that we could warn and correct and guide and instruct and comfort and bring family bonding to the kids around us. And to the adults around us, Lord, those who have been displaced and who missed out on all this good stuff when they were kids. And so they're walking around so broken. Lord, would you give us your mercy and your compassion for them to seek connection, to listen to them and to comfort them instead of responding with anger or shutting them out. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your mercy and gentleness with us. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, lastly, I would just thank you for your patience with me as I went over. And I would just like to invite you, if you need prayer today for anything that I talked about or for anything else that's um, going on in your life right now, there will be some folks up here to pray with you. Please don't miss out on that opportunity to get some connection and some support. And have a great week.